Michael Osterlink here, and I'm with uh, Jake LaPeruque. He is Senior Counsel for the Constitution Project at the Project on Government Oversight. How are you doing, Jake? Good. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to see you. So you recently authored a report for POGO entitled Securing Our Elections, How States Can Mitigate the Potential Damage of Hacked Voter Registration Rules. Uh, before we jump into your report on securing our elections, uh, tell us a little bit about the Constitution Project and POGO, if you will. So um, the Constitution Project, we're um, a component of POGO now. We uh, used to be our own organization and then joined up with them uh, a little over a year ago uh, to become a part of POGO. Um, the Constitution Project, we focus on uh, civil liberties issues and constitutional rights and principles in different spaces, um, especially those relating to uh, the criminal justice system and national security issues. Um, we're a nonpartisan entity, and basically, we just you know conduct education, research, and advocacy to make sure that um, civil liberties and constitutional rights, especially in those spaces where they're often challenged, um, go protected. Um, you know, this involves a lot of work directly from our staff, but also we often um, convene experts um, across the partisan spectrum from a variety of places to try to find you know sort of common sense consensus solutions that can actually move the ball forward on the issues that we work on. Uh, POGO, more generally, is an organization that focuses on, um, you know, um, as like sort of a watchdog um, and whistleblower organization that just tries to make sure government, you know, stays um, ethical, <laughs> um, ethically accountable, and, um, yeah, just kind of serves the overall type of watchdog functions that you need to make sure that, you know, government's running properly. So, you know, we, we fit in pretty well into that space of trying to stay within the same goals that they have, but also sort of bolster them and a little added focus specifically on, on civil liberties. Nice. Yeah, well, I got to say that uh, I have worked with the Constitution Project way in the past. Uh, great group, and it's awesome that you guys are part of POGO, because POGO in itself is a great group, so it's, it's uh, really cool that you guys are now kind of merged together, and then that the Constitution Project is a project of POGO. Um, so securing our elections, it's uh, now 2019, we're in January 2019. It, hacking, in quotes, of our election has been in the news, at least since 2016. Um, what's interesting about your, many things are interesting about your report. One of the things that stands out about your report is in the news, they don't talk about voter registration rolls much, although it's obvious that they are vulnerable to hacking from state and non-state actors. It's mostly been the machines that have been the focus on, uh, at least in the popular press. And so I think it's so important that you are bringing attention to and light upon the vulnerability uh, of the uh, registration rules. Talk about what led you guys first to do the report and then we can kind of jump into the report itself. Yeah, well, like you said, um, voter rolls and registration databases, really they don't seem to be getting they're due in terms of discussion of this issue. I mean, obviously, there's a ton of things to talk about, and actually protecting the voting machines themselves is incredibly important. I mean, if you start to have problems with those on a large scale, that, that can really destroy confidence in the system. So I, I don't want to in any way disparage those efforts, which are extremely important. But um, registration databases are also really important, too, because you know, um, in, in the bulk of states, majority of states, um, you need to be registered before election day to vote. And when you go to your polling place, they're going to look at the poll book, either an electronic or a paper poll book that's printed out from the registration database, look up your name and say, okay, there you are, you can vote. Um, and if you're not there, then they're going to say, wait, um, we, we can't just let you in to vote. You need to, you need to be registered. We need to, you know, be sure that you belong here, that you're from this neighborhood and you're supposed to be voting at this place. 
Um, so if you had you know, mass tampering with registration databases, you could, even if not as directly as messing with the tallies and machines, still actually cause a lot of havoc, harm, and potentially, you know, in very specific and deliberative ways, swing results by, um, you know, cutting out who is allowed to vote. Or if, if you, let's say you just destroyed an entire state's registration database, just cut everyone out. I mean, you wouldn't throw the result to one candidate, but you would cause havoc where you couldn't even really have an election. Um, and obviously that in itself would have a hugely degrading impact on confidence in our systems. Um, so, I mean, that, that's why the threat is so important. Another thing to think about is that, you know, compared to voting machines, which are a really serious threat and often face a lot of really bad vulnerabilities because the, these vendors are not developing really effective systems, um, they, they are at least spread out. You know, you have different machines in all kinds of different states. Um, you sometimes have different machines throughout a state. So, you know, kind of the, the, the bad thing about that is it, it's hard to get a good solution because you have to go through so many systems. The good thing is it sort of has, it makes it a lot harder to hack everything because you would have to go through so many different types of systems. Registration databases are usually centralized. So it gives one big potential target for if you had, you know, a, a nefarious foreign actor to go after to cause a lot of havoc. If they can get into that registration database and there aren't effective safeguards or backups located somewhere else, you could, you know, in one shot really do a lot of damage. Um, so that's why we think that registration databases are really important. As you were saying, also in relation to 2016, you know, there were obviously um, efforts uh, by Russia in a lot of different ways to, you know, launch cyber attacks in the U.S. in relation to our election. Um, there's no evidence that they actually hacked vote tellers or vote rolls. Um, the largest degree to which they did infiltrate our systems was the registration systems. There's, um, there's still not a ton of detail, but there are reports that have been confirmed that I think at least two states, um, Russia did infiltrate the registration rules. Now, there's no evidence that they actually engaged in a tampering or changed, you know, on a, a mass scale who was in those registration databases, but they did breach them, which means, you know, they, they got to the point where they probably could have, if they wanted to, uh, started causing a lot of serious mischief. Um, so it's it's definitely, you know, a very serious threat in terms of the harm it can do, and it's, it's an area where we're, we're still pretty vulnerable, unfortunately. So, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I could have sworn I had seen a story after 2016 uh, affirming what you said that there was two, at least two attempts by a state actor to go after particular states' uh, voting registration rolls, but also that um, certain states' voter registration rolls ended up on the dark web. Yeah, and I mean this is something that that gets a little more complicated. In that a lot of states have. Um, ways that you can actually, you know, just as a member of a public, a public, you can engage in public access records for um, registration data. Um, you know, I mean, when I used to work on campaigns, I did this, um, you know, in a state, you know, as a campaign, I wanted to get the voter file when, you know, got the registration data. Um, now, what you can get as a member of the, that's not in every state, that's in some, and what you can get as a member of the public requesting it, it's probably not the full file. Like, you're, you might just have the information of like, oh, this person has lived at this address, you know, where they voted for the last 10 years and they voted in these elections. But you probably won't have things like party affiliation or other very, very sensitive details that, you know, might be in a private file. Um, you know, hacking risks and something like that going onto the dark web, if it wasn't from a, you know, good faith um, data request like this, you know, you might be pulling more sensitive information. DC actually, um, you know, where I live has had some instances where they have a law that says you have to, before an election, publish the voter file, just put, you know, publicly online. 
Um, but they put everything, including, you know, people's party affiliation, their full mailing and residential address, and just like a lot of information that they don't need to do just to allow people to confirm that they're registered that I, you know, just on social media when they publish that have like yelled at them before being like you, like I, I've read this law, you don't need to put up as much information as you guys are and you probably shouldn't for the sake of people's privacy and making sure that they don't get subject to like phishing attacks. Right. Wow. I didn't realize that about Washington, D.C. I'm glad I don't live here <laughs> anymore. Yeah. You, you get all your voter information just dropped on the web and you, you don't get to vote for Congress. Wow. Another conversation for another day in terms of uh, representation and, and such here in D.C. Um, so the registration rules, we know that they're vulnerable. Is there any history, and you've already pointed out there's, there's at least two uh, attempts by the Russians in 2016 that have been public. Is there any history of other state or non-state actors getting access and modifying, managing, you know, some changes in any kind of these roles? I don't mean 2016, previous to that. Um, I, not as far as I know of, and, you know, in a nefarious and authorized act, act, um, access manner. You know, obviously, you know, we have lots of issues um, ending to um, voter purges. You know, the, there's a yeah. huge variety in the way voter purges occur, and that's its own, you know, kind of separate issue of to what degree those are proper and effective. Um, you know, it, it, those can cause a little bit of a problem looking at the space in that if those types of things occur frequently or don't have clear rules and standards, then it can be a little harder to suss out when things are going according to that plan or if something has been, you know, added in or swept up in response to that. But that's typically um, what we've seen in the past in terms of that. So again, you know, there, there's policy discussions about that. A lot of people might say that those aren't proper, but they are authorized. It is the you know, officials in charge of those databases in conjunction with a policy that was approved by the people with the power to make that decision, um, you know, making changes to the database as authorized. Uh, I don't think we've seen any instances in recent history where an unauthorized actor has found a way to gain access to the database and make changes to it that weren't based in some sort of lawful authority. Okay. So we're kind of looking into the future as opposed to looking into the past for problems, uh, we recognize their problems now, problems that could be uh, taken advantage of by state non-state actors into the future. We're not too far away from the 2020 election, as an example. Um, so talk to me about a, a couple of different things. Are there any standards presently instituted amongst the state? Maybe there's a state compact or federal state agreements in terms of just minimal standards on how they should secure these databases, or is it state by state? It, it tends to pretty much be state by state, and states have very different systems. Um, I mentioned most states are centralized. A few, um, that's become the norm, but if you actually have uh, decentralized or kind of secondary decentralized systems, you know, that, that can make things potentially a little harder for a nefarious actor to hack because you know, you've got more kind of a uh, wider set of targets, moving targets. Um, so that could potentially be an obstacle. Uh, when we did this report, uh, we also, we didn't focus on the report, but we asked whether states conduct backups, a lot of states do. Um, you know, the quality and nature of those backups can vary significantly, and that's something we want to do more research on. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a, um, it's really is a patchwork, um, and we actually we we still don't know that too much about kind of what are the practices that states um, use to protect their registration databases, let alone who's following um, current best practices for security measures. So we we might have a few different issues too that you that needs to be looked into, like physical security of the actual uh, servers that contain this information, physical security around the, the computers that have access to the servers, 
the training of the staff who manage the information, the people who collect and input, input this information. So there's it seemingly just from that perspective, psychological with individuals, physical security, and then the, the, the need to protect the information data as it moves between machines. Those three different things need to be looked at as well, no? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the sort of thing where, I mean, I, th I think we look most um, acutely at the threat of a nefarious actor engaging in a cyber attack. But, I mean, there are other ways that this could lead to some really um, troubling outcomes. I mean, you could, you know, let's say you have, like, one server where you're storing all this information um, and a natural disaster occurs and mm. that destroys the server. Um, now, if you don't have a backup, you're, and that happens right before an election, you're in really big trouble for conducting your election. Even if you do have a backup, um, you have to ask questions like, how much are you updating that? Um, you know, have you have your election officials run tests to see how quickly they can get that backup, that, that they can do so in a manner where they're definitely sure that the data is not going to be corrupted, that it's going to be uploaded properly, distributed properly, things like that. I mean, those are just some basic best practices where even if you don't have a bad actor, you just want to make sure that, you know, in your worst case scenarios where something like that, like a natural disaster happens, that you can handle it. Um, there are even more scenarios that you have to worry about if you do have a bad actor, because then you have to worry about, well, okay, what other access points that they could get in, you know? Are, um, are the people who have access to the system, are they using multi-factor authentication? Are there different types of, you know, locks and access protocols for the backup as the main system to make sure that if someone hacks the main system, they can't also just hack the backup the same way? Is your system online in a way that someone could potentially penetrate it by just over the internet? Or is it an offline system? That's typically what you like to do for really sensitive, secure systems is take them offline so that you can only have an attack by directly accessing it. And that's not foolproof either, but that's a pretty important security measure. So, and I mean, there, there's a huge range of factors. And also, I mean, this is always the case of cybersecurity. It's, it's kind of this back and forth of offensive and defensive warfare. So, I mean, you, you'll have a set of best practices right now that are really important over time. Various actors are going to find ways around those, find new way attack vectors, and you're going to have to develop new um, defenses to respond to that. So it's it's important to take the whole range of risks into account. It's also important to stay vigilant and be aware if new threats are emerging that you need to um, you know, bolster your defenses against. So in the beginning of this conversation, we talked about machines, the actual voting machines, uh, which is getting a lot more press. A lot of the pushback you hear from the secretaries of states are that oh, these machines are secure, they're not vulnerable to attack, they're not on the web. And you know, we both know that there's a lot of experts in the field who can point quite easily to the fact that that's not true. What kind of, what kind of um, um, pushback, if at all, are you getting from secretaries of state from your report or others who play in this space at that state level? I, I haven't heard any pushback on our report so far. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful there won't be because, I mean, one thing that I was optimistic about is that while we found a lot of problems, um, you know, the problems don't go to really complicated system like spending a lot of money to replace voting machines, dealing with new vendors, dealing with new tests. It really came down to um, the need to tweak a lot of state laws that were, were really written with these potential risks in mind and that, you know, you r might run into some technical legal obstacles of, oh, wait, are we even allowed to do that because okay. the law was written in a way that didn't anticipate it. So... I mean, you know, the, there's work to do, but it's potentially the sort of thing that you don't have those, you know, wide range of stakeholders who might worry about this and say, wait, 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 let's slow down and also maybe you should keep buying my stuff um, like <laughs> right, you do right, a voting right. machine. Yeah. Um, you know, for 
state officials and vendors, you know, I think often, you know, kind of the complaint you'll hear from them is, you know, um, there's the very common one, which I do sympathize a little bit with, which is we don't want to, you know, say there are so many problems that people lose faith in the current voting system as it exists. Um, you know, I th that, that's an important, but I think, you know, it's the response is, okay, so we need to find a balance of how do I d we identify these problems and say we're constantly improving things while also taking those problems seriously. Um, you know, others you'll hear are along the lines of, I think, you know, um, just concerns like, you know, to what degree states are being proactive about this. And there's a huge range. Some states are very proactive. Some, um, you know, haven't been so um, responsive. So I think it's just a matter of, you know, they, they need to take some of those concerns, some legitimate, some legitimate, and just find a way to frame them of, you know, putting them out there if they are, you know, are good actors and are actually concerned about them you know, find a way to make those concerns known while also still trying to be proactive about the problems that exist. And I think, you know, at the same time, you know, um, people in our space, the election security space, tech experts, you know, I, I think generally do, but, you know, should keep trying to be in the mentality of, you know, we're not going to blame everyone for kind of the sins of 10, 20 years ago now, especially for those who take those problems head on. I mean, there, there have been problems in the past that really should have been addressed before now, but you know, I, I will happily applaud any state election official who wants to address them and say, hey, this is something we gotta deal with it. It's not gonna be solved overnight, but I'm committed to doing it. I mean, that, that's what election uh, experts and tech experts wanna see. Amen, uh, I definitely like that approach. It's much more transpartisan, proactive, and forward-thinking as opposed to just whipping someone, um, which doesn't really get you anywhere. So maybe some good press, but doesn't actually solve the problems. Um, you, you know, this is obviously, it's multiple states, all the states have these kind of uh, databases. Are there states that are, like, you know, if you're going to do a scale, 10 being the best states, 1 being the worst states, and worst being the, the fact that maybe they want to do something, but they just haven't changed the rules, the laws, the regulations to make it happen. What are some of the better states that might be models for what you'd like to see accomplished? And what are the states that really need to do a lot more work? Um, I'd have to check in detail. I mean, one state that stands out... Um Especially because I, I believe their secretary of state um, is is currently head in the EAC is Vermont. Um, they testified at a hearing last year in the, the Senate Rules Committee talking about the Secure Elections Act. Or I don't I don't believe it was the markup, but it was sort of one of the hearings that was done in preparation for marking up the Secure Elections Act. Um, and the I would strongly encourage anyone who's interested in this topic to read their testimony. Um, it was all phenomenal list of like a lot of specific mem of um, best practices to take in relation to voting machines, in relation to audits after elections, in relation to registration databases. Um, and again, it's not the sort of thing where every state has to do it the exact same way, but the, you know, that kind of mentality of let's look at these types of threats in a wide variety of field and let's create um, you know, this list of ways that we can deal with it. Um, and being transparent about that is, is very, very good. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's a great place to start. And I think, like, that's also just having that approach of we're going to identify the threats, we're going to be vocal about them, and we're going to list out what we think are best practices is a good response. Um, you know, I think we've, we, I've encountered sometimes where states are a little more cagey about, oh, we can't talk about where we see threats because then we're kind of inviting attack. Um, you know, serious attackers, especially for nation states where you have people who are literally career professionals in this, they're going to figure them out for themselves. Um, you know, it's it's better to shine a light on the issues and find ways to 
address them. Um, so yeah, I, I, bad states um, less are coming to mind again because I I don't want to overgeneralize. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I just I don't want to overgeneralize, especially when there, there's so much you know movement in the, in this space. I mean, for example, we've seen some problems in Georgia. Um, they've been involved yeah. in litigation, but they're now moving forward with some measures that seem to not get them all the way there, but are at least better than what they were doing before. So, you know, it's it's fortunate in a space where there's a lot of continued movement. I mean, it seems like there's finally getting to the point where states are recognizing that they can't um, sit on their hands when they get called out for doing something wrong. Uh, you uh, uh, conclude your report by making some recommendations, both some at the state level and some at the federal level. And you've touched actually upon some of the recommendations already, but can you just kind of walk us through briefly some of those recommendations, both state and at federal? Yes. Yeah, so, so what we focused on was, I mean, I think we want to in the future do a lot more research on those best practices for debt registration databases. Um, we kind of started out when a less cheery aspect of cybersecurity, but a really important one, which is contingency plans. And so, so we kind of took the mentality of, okay, you know, we, we want to make sure that registration databases are never hacked um, and exploited, altered, or destroyed because of all the bad things I was talking about before. What if that does happen, though? I mean, even if we do all those best practices that we were talking about, even if you have a state that is just down the checklist, perfect on everything for doing the best thing they can, there's no such thing in any area as an impenetrable perfect system. You know, anytime someone says this system, you know, can't be hacked, is perfect, that's a red flag that that is not a good, honest assessment of a cybersecurity system that's probably not that secure because a good cybersecurity expert will tell you that there's there's always some sort of threat lurking in the background or just around the corner, even if it hasn't been invented yet. Um, and that's why it's really important to have contingencies for, okay, if this does get hacked, if this does go wrong, how do I minimize the damage, what do I do next? So that's what we wanted to look at for registration databases is if a big hack did happen, how could states respond to it? Um, and we found that probably for most states, the best way you would respond to it was <clears throat> if you didn't have provisional, if you didn't have poll books from registration databases to check in people as they came to vote, um, the system for that on a small scale in the past and would have to be on a large scale here would be provisional voting. You know, and that's when, you know, say if you've moved or you had a little error or, you know, an unintentional problem with your registration data uh, and you go to the poll and they say, oh, you're not in the poll book, you would fill out a provisional ballot in, in most states in these types of scenarios um, and you know you check against specific rules that the state lays out and then if everything is okay your vote would be counted through that process it's a little more you know um, time work and paperwork and bureaucracy but it's just that way of checking since it's a backup so you probably need to have that backup apply on a large scale the biggest problem we found with this was um, we, we asked um, about 30 states that where this seemed like it would be the backup system to kick in about their procedures. Um, almost all the states we found actually seem to be pretty much ready for large scale use provisional ballots in terms of having just the number of ballots, you know, the paper, the special envelopes that many states use um, for that type of large scale contingency. So that was very reassuring. Um, the worrisome thing was a lot of states, their laws and provisional ballots were written uh, about 17 years ago now in response to the Help America Vote Act. This was a federal election reform act that was enacted and one of the rules was um provisions of that was states have to have a provisional ballot system um but because it was kind of designed about this idea of law of small scale activities and that you might have an error of, oh i you know moved down the street or 
like the PO box got changed or something like that, um, that would cause a small scale error to maybe one in a thousand, one in ten thousand people. Um, most states have written their provisional ballot laws to say that one of the requirements for it to be counted is you have to cross check the person's name against the registration database. Now, if that's just you know your one in ten thousand person who's oh I you know I moved a block away I forgot to update it that's not a big deal to do. If your problem is that a foreign adversary hacked and destroyed the registration database, you can't cross-check it. So by the laws that exist in a lot of these states, we wouldn't be able to count anyone's vote, even if we were you know, taking people at the polls and having them cast provisional ballots. Um, now, some states, they have other systems. They say, you know, if you sign a sworn affidavit and we conduct some sort of check afterwards just to verify that this person is who they say they are and everything's legitimate, or you can cross-check against something else like a DMV database, um, you know, a postal da um, database, things like that, um, you know, that's fine. And that's the sort of thing that probably would be an effective system like there. You know, you, you don't just have someone sign in, fill out the ballot, say on this person, and, and buy and never follow up on it. Um, but you can have other, other types of sort of follow-ups besides just the registration database, which in this case is by a con you know the contingency we're worried about would be compromised so um you know it, it should be a pretty simple and technical change that would hopefully never need to come into practice i mean hopefully something like this never does occur um but it's one that would end up probably being really really important if this ever happened because you know we would we've seen in cases before you know florida 2000 other instances where you have just confusion and chaos because something goes wrong in an election um you know often the, these election laws can be really obscure and you get to a point where it's not until election day is happening or nearly done that um, you know state election officials start to say oh wait there's this little law and and these three lines you know in a 10,000 page of our state code I never realized that are we even allowed to do this thing that we suddenly need to do um, we don't want to be in that situation it's it would be a lot so we recommend kind of moving to a system like you have in those other states where there are other ways to cross check someone's name in a provisional ballot system or even just say, you know, put in the law as a contingency. Like, you know, if you have 20%, 50%, whatever, just a, a large portion of voters are casting by provisional ballot, at that point it kicks into some sort of alternate check system so that you don't have that kind of disaster scenario of a secretary of state or, you know, a county election board official saying, okay, wait, I've got these, you know, this whole precinct to provisional ballots because someone hacked our registration database, but wait, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to count them or not. Okay, so that's uh, some thoughts at this at the state level. What uh, are some of your um, recommendations at the federal level? Well, um, the federal level is pretty simple in that, you know, a, a lot of these states didn't have actually any provisional um, ballot law until the Help America Vote Act passed and said create a provisional ballot law. So a lot of states really... Um, they, they enacted their provisional vote law simply as a response to uh, Help America Vote, vote Act HAVA. Uh, so, uh, you know, a pretty simple across-the-board remedy would be to put a, a new provision within HAVA to say you have to, you know, you have to create provisional vote laws like you did before. And by the way, those provisional vote laws have to allow for counting the votes even if a registration database can't be cross-checked against or... You know, again, even if you wanted to have it be a sort of contingency focus thing, say, if, you know, above a certain, a large number of voters or a large portion of the people voting your election have to cast provisional ballots for whatever reason, um, you have to have ways that you don't rely on the registration database as 
a requirement to count their ballots. You have some other way to, to verify them and to make sure that those votes are counted. Nice. Well, Jake, appreciate this. Uh, great report, securing our elections, how states can mitigate the potential damage of hacked voter registration rolls. Uh, where can folks find your report? And specifically your report, and then other, th- other work that you work on as well. Um, you can find all of that at our website, which is pogo.org. Um, we've got the report up there. Um, it's great to read online. And yeah, you can find all my other work on elections and a variety of other topics. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much.